This is Poetry Off the Shelf from the Poetry Foundation. This episode was originally published in September of 2015. I'm Curtis Fox. This week, The Poet and the Riot. Dr. Martin Luther King once said, A riot is the language of the unheard. King had seen a few riots in his time, and he himself inadvertently became the spark of others. Good evening, Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. In the spring of 1968, when King was assassinated, this language of the unheard was shouted by tens of thousands of African Americans in cities throughout the country. Chicago, in particular, erupted. 11 people died, thousands were arrested, dozens of buildings burned, 28 blocks on the west side were severely damaged. The Illinois National Guard couldn't handle it, so President Johnson sent in an army division. Essentially, people were rebelling, I refuse to use the word riot, against the injustice that they had dealt with ever since their birth. Riots are understood in mainstream America in 1968 as a universally terrible thing. They're not understood as the language of the unheard. They're understood as something scary and destructive. Because the Negroes were coming down the street. Today on the podcast, we're listening to and talking about a poem that Gwendolyn Brooks wrote in response to the Chicago riots of 1968. It's called simply Riot, and it approached its subject in such an unusual way that it became that rare thing, a controversial poem. Gwendolyn Brooks was born in Kansas, but she grew up and spent her entire life living in and writing about Chicago. By 1968, she was a Chicago institution and one of the country's preeminent poets. She'd won the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry long ago, back in 1950. In the tumult of the mid-1960s, after contact with young leaders of the black arts movement like Haki Matabuti, her work took on a conspicuously political turn. She dropped her longtime publisher, Harper and Rowe, and reconsidered her audience. Gwendolyn Brooks, after 1967, had made a decision to write primarily for black folk. In 1968, Haki Marabuti's name was Don Lee, and he edited a magazine out of Chicago called Black Expressions. After the 1968 riots in Chicago, he commissioned Gwendolyn Brooks. I felt then that we needed a more seasoned voice to really look at what was happening in the streets. And so I just asked her, would she consider writing something for the magazine around what's going on today? The entire country is in the midst of tremendous upheaval, and artists of conscience, Brooks foremost among them, are saying, how can my work serve and speak to this moment? Like Gwendolyn Brooks, Elizabeth Alexander is a winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry. We asked her and Haki Badabudi to comment on the poem, and we start with the epigraph. That quote from Dr. King. A riot is the language of the unheard, Martin Luther King. What, what does this mean, the language of the unheard? Who's not being heard and who are they not being heard by? Where does power reside? Where has power been abused? How will people, how will the people, as it were, be heard? The poem begins by describing its one and only character, a rich white guy by the name of John Cabot. John Cabot, out of Wilma, once a Wycliffe, all white-blue rose below his golden hair, wrapped richly in right linen and right wool, almost forgot his jaguar and Lake Bluff, almost forgot Grand Tully, 
which is the best thing that ever happened to Scotch, almost forgot the sculpture at the Richard Gray and Distelheim, the kidney pie at Maxim's, the grenadine de boeuf at Maison Henri. Okay, it's rude to interrupt a poem, I know, but let's talk about that stanza a bit before moving on. John Cabot. Cabot is a very prominent name. So here we have someone who is a descendant of a founding father. We have a Mayflower person. We have a Harvard person. John Cabot, out of Wilma, once a Wycliffe. And John Wycliffe was essentially an English forerunner of the Protestant Reformation. This history is critical if you're going to really totally understand how she's positioning uh, John Cabot. It was not only a, a, a cultural and a racial difference, it was a class difference. He, he was of the upper class. All white-blue rose below his golden hair, wrapped richly in right linen and right wool, almost forgot his jaguar and Lake Bluff. Now, jaguar in the black community at this time was almost a foreign, it is a foreign language. Nobody drove a jaguar. And, of course, Lake Bluff, that's an area of vacations and stuff that we never get to. Almost forgot Grand Tully, which is the best thing that ever happened to Scotch. Scotch is not our drink, okay? Almost forgot the sculpture at the Richard Gray and Distelheim, the kidney pie at Maxim's. The kidney pie at Maxim's, Maxim's being in Paris, you know, this is a traveled person. Kidney pie, I don't even know what kidney pie is. At Maxim, but Maxim is a, is a very expensive, exclusive restaurant. The Grenadine de Boeuf at Maison Henri. John Cabot stands for uh, wealth and, and, and privilege and whiteness that are unexamined. Some might think she sets him up as a straw man, but I think she sets him up as the problems of concentrated privilege in our society. So here's where we're at in the poem. John Cabot, in his Jaguar, has almost forgotten all his privileges and luxuries. Kidney pie at Maxime's. The Grenadine de Boeuf at Maison Henri. Because something quite unusual is happening around him. Because the Negroes were coming down the street. Because the poor were sweaty and unpretty. Not like two dainty Negroes in Winnetka. And they were coming toward him in rough ranks, in seas, in windsweep. They were black and loud and not detainable, and not discreet. In other words, John Cabot has found himself in the middle of a riot. Because the Negroes were coming down the street, what? What is going to happen? There's this sense of anticipation, which is the question mark, the unknown, the wild hope of riot. Because the poor were sweaty and unpretty, not like two dainty Negroes in Winnetka, what does that refer to? She's talking about black people, Winnetka being a wealthy Chicago suburb. I've lived in Chicago for over 60 years, and I still haven't been to Winnetka. And they were coming toward him in rough ranks. Now, rough ranks, other people might say a mob. But again, the poet in Gwendolyn Brooks, rough ranks. I love how um, these people, it turns to this wonderful natural imagery, in seas, in, in windsweep. In windsweep. This is a force of nature. This is, this is history. It's happening. They were black and loud and not detainable and not discreet. 
So detainable and discreet takes you back to the dainty Negroes, especially with those Ds, dainty, detainable, discreet. When you only let one in or you only let a couple in, then you feel that the Negro problem is contained. But for John Cabot, in the wrong place at the wrong time, the Negro problem is suddenly not contained, and he's revolted by the black people coming toward him. Gross. Gross. Que tu grossier. John Cabot itched instantly beneath the nourished white that told his story of glory to the world. Don't let it touch me, the blackness. Lord, he whispered to any handy angel in the sky. Any handy angel. So he's suddenly trying to find religion to save his butt before this windswept mass of people come and get him. Don't let it touch me. It's not they, it's it. You see what I'm saying? They're not even people. John Cabot itched instantly beneath the nourished white. Nourished white is such a phrase. We would say today, privilege, right? That well, you know, she's so much better than we are. I mean, we might, <laughs> you know, we might say privilege, but I mean, nourished. We've had these food images, but, you know, if it is the white body, it's a white body that's been nourished with heavy, over-rich food. But in a thrilling announcement on, it drove and breathed on him and touched him. In that breath, the fume of pigfoot chittering and cheap chili, malign, mocked John. The angel who he thought was so handy is in fact a black angel, an African-American angel, as one with the crowd, aligned with the views of the crowd and thus coming with the fume of Pigfoot Chitlin and Cheap Chili. And in terrific touch, old averted doubt jerked forward decently, cried, Cabot, John, you are a desperate man, and the desperate die expensively today. John Cabot went down in the smoke and fire and broken glass and blood, and he cried, Lord, forgive these niggas that know not what they do. And that's how the poem ends. John Cabot is killed in the riot. He does not go down reformed. Of course, those have been the final words of uh, Jesus Christ. Forgive them for they not know what they do. And they, you know, nailing them to the cross. You know, it, it's all but impossible to feel sorry for John Cabot because the poem puts us readers in the uncomfortable position of feeling okay about his death. You're right. That's an unusual strategy in a poem. It is, and it's the first for Gwendolyn Brooks. This was the first, and I think that it really upset a lot of people, primarily white people, mm-hmm. who read it and, and really dismissed it. And actually, it's one of her best poems. Is John Cabot a realistic character? Are we meant to take him as a fair representation of a wealthy white man in 1968? For Elizabeth Alexander, John Cabot is a stand-in for something bigger than one man. John Cabot is an idea. John Cabot is not literally there. He's an idea that's got to go. He's an idea that's obsolete. He's an order that can no longer stand. Haki Marabudi disagrees. John Cabot is a realistic character, he says, though he does admit that he's drawn a bit broadly. I think that obviously she piles on a little bit. <laughs> she of, does. Yeah, yeah she, she does. The bigger questions are, what does the poem say about the Chicago riots of 1968? And what did Gwendolyn Brooks think of the role of riots in African-American history? 
Hakimanabudi says that the poem is an expression of Gwendolyn Brooks's political evolution. Uh, she was beginning to understand that, that, that as, as King said, riot was the voice of unheard, but also recognizing that this was an uprising. This was a rebellion. These were empowering acts of young people and not so young people. And when you begin to understand the tradition of this country, nothing changed without rebellion. You know, whether it's the, the war against uh, England or the war between the states, it's a violent country. And so nothing changes without violence. And so this is how she, we looked at what was going on in the 60s and what's going on now in, in 2015. Mm-hmm. You look at a place like Ferguson, where the entire police department, except for me, one or two are white, where the entire governing body from the mayor to the city councils are white, where essentially they were running a criminal enterprise by stopping black people and fining them for whatever reason. And if the black people could not pay the fine, they ended up in jail and the fines doubled and tripled. All right. So the whole enterprise, the whole Ferguson whole enterprise was a criminal activity. That has changed. That changed because of the uprising and the rebellion of people in Ferguson. I think if there's anything to take from this section today, it's that unjust orders cannot stand. Notice that Elizabeth Alexander referred to riot as a section. And as a matter of fact, it is part of a larger work of three poems that were later published in a book. Alexander says that if you really want to understand riot and what Brooks had to say about racial violence, you have to read all three poems together. John Cabot, she says, stands for a social order that's got to go, and his death clears the way for the next poem, the third sermon on the warpland. And it starts with a definition of phoenix from the dictionary. In Egyptian mythology, a bird which lived for 500 years and then consumed itself in fire, rising, renewed from the ashes. That's where we are after this unwell social order has gone down. Now it's like what's going to rise from the ashes? And we're in Egyptian mythology. We're in a black cosmos. When we enter that poem, the earth is a beautiful place. And then in the next stanza, the black philosopher says. That black philosopher lays out a vision for how African-American life can be reborn out of the ashes of the riot. And the third poem in this series is a beautiful short lyric about lovers meeting for an intimate moment amid the turmoil in the streets. I think that's really important because I think that it lends tremendous depth to her critique, that she's not just satirizing an easy target, but rather she's saying What does it mean to, quote, flail in the hot time? What does it mean for riot to be language of the unheard? How can we return to especially young people in black communities for the answer about what's next in what is apparently a perennial struggle? You can read Riot and many other poems by Gwendolyn Brooks on our website. You can find this podcast in iTunes and on SoundCloud. If you like this episode, please link to it on Facebook or Twitter. Or let us know directly what you think. Email us at podcast at poetryfoundation.org. The theme music for this program comes from the Claudia Quintet. For Poetry Off the Shelf, I'm Curtis Fox. Thanks for listening.